I have entitled the message, The Only Door to Real Life. The question today as we approach this passage that must be asked if we are to understand why the words in red are here in these Bibles is have you found that door to life? You personally as an individual, have you found the door to freedom? Do you know what it is to go from one day to the next, really from one moment to the next, and have the incredible burden of a lifetime of sin and guilt lifted? It's as though the entire world was lifted off your shoulders. Do you know that experience? If you do, it is the greatest reality in your life. If you don't, God has called you here to make it today the greatest reality in your life. That door to life could be only described in this passage as abundant life. That's the way Jesus describes it. Look at John chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus said to them, who are them? Jesus said to them again, them are the Pharisees, the eminent religious leaders, the preeminent religious leaders of the nation, the most learned people, the most religious people, had the widest following in terms of religion in the nation. In the crowd also are his disciples. Specifically in this group of people, there would be this man who was recently healed of his blindness, a man born blind. He has not only been healed of his blindness physically, but also spiritually, and has come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. A man unable to see Jesus. A man unable to get near to Jesus on his own. A man that would have been the off-scouring, really, of the world. A man who was nothing. He was a beggar. A man that would have been pushed away in the crowd as people went by in a hurry. This man, Jesus, went to, approached him, touched him, healed him, and then saved him when he could not go to Jesus himself and inquire for any of those things. And that, to me, is a grand picture of salvation. It is to present to us the spiritual realities of salvation, which we have studied. Jesus then, in this passage, beginning in verse 1, begins to present himself as the good shepherd, and he speaks of a sheepfold, which was the communal one used in villages where many shepherds would bring their sheep, many flocks, for the night, and a porter would guard the door, and they would put all their flocks in, they'd go off and rest in a local inn. When he got done talking about that and teaching off of that analogy, which was so familiar with that society, the people that were his followers would have understood, but the, the Pharisees and the others known as, quote, the Jews in the Gospel of John. When John mentions the Jews in his Gospel, he is always referring, most of the time, to those that reject Jesus. Not the Jews in general, but the Jews that oppose him. Because certainly there were Jews that were among the disciples. So when he comes to verse 6, and it says that they did not understand the things that he had said, it's not his disciples, but it is these religious leaders. So in verse 7, Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. 
I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Do you have that life today? Can you say, I know I do. I have the abundant life. I know I have passed from death into life. I know that the greatest goal of my life now is the right goal. To know God. To walk in obedience to God. To find His plan. I know that the greatest success in all of life is to find forgiveness for my sins. To have entered in through that door. Can you say that? If you can, praise God and thank Him for it. Because there's a lot of people that go through their life and never enter in through the door and yet think that they are successful. Listen to this. In 1923... A very important meeting was held at Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Attending this meeting were nine of the world's most successful financiers. Those present were the president of the largest independent steel company, the president of the largest utility company, the president of the largest gas company, the greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet of the United States, the greatest, quote, bear on Wall Street, head of the world's greatest monopoly, the president of the Bank of International Settlements. You would look at that list of people and you would say, surely these men found success in life. But if you follow their lives out 25 years, you can again ask the question, did they really find success in life? Did they really find life? Well, all of their energy, all of their seeking for success, for fame, for money, for power, did they find real life? 25 years after that meeting, let's see where these men ended up. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, died bankrupt and lived on borrowed money for five years before his death. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died a fugitive from justice and penniless in a foreign land. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hospson, went insane. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Kooten, died in another country bankrupt. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, had just been released from Sing Sing Penitentiary. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, killed himself in suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, killed himself in suicide. There is a lie that is set before us in our world, especially in America, that if you can realize the dream and climb the ladder and make the money and find the position that you'll find life. That is the definition of success. When you track the lives of these successful men, you see that every single one of them was in all reality a failure. These men walked through many doors to find success, quote, in their lives. But they failed ultimately in life. They were failures because they failed to walk through the most important door. And that is the door that we find here in our passage, the door that leads to forgiveness of your sin, to the lifting of your guilt, to the implanting of real life within you. And thus, what seemed to be such successful men, they ended as complete failures. You don't want to end your life as a complete failure. And though you may not be on the road that they were on, you're on a road. And you're going through doors. The most important door of all is the door of Jesus Christ. We've talked about Him as the Messiah. Let's talk about Him as the door. As we look at verses 7 through 11, 
Here we have a most instructive picture of Jesus Christ himself. He says that he is the door of the sheep. Most assuredly, Jesus is laying weight now in his words. Verily, verily, most assuredly, truly, truly. I say to you in verse 7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. Now we have already looked at one type of sheepfold. And what he does is he changes his analogy here. He changes his analogy from the village sheepfold to the country sheepfold. This would be the kind of sheepfold that the shepherds would have had the night that the angels appeared to them out in the fields announcing the birth of Jesus Christ. It was out in the fields. It was the kind of sheepfold that Philip Keller describes it so well. He says, it is an enclosure open to the wind. It is an enclosure open to the scrutiny of the owner. It is not covered in, roofed over, or shielded from the eyes of the shepherd. It is not a barn, a shed, or a closed-in structure. Its walls are open to the sun, the sky, the stars, the rain, and the wind, and it may be made of rough-laid stone, sun-dried bricks, timber, mud, and wattle, or even tightly packed brush. Basically a round thing that is made out in the fields by the shepherd himself. The main purpose of the sheepfold is to provide protection for the sheep, especially at night and in stormy weather. The purpose of the high, thick walls were to serve as a barrier to prevent thieves or to use the modern parlance rustlers from invading the flock to plunder the defenseless sheep. The enclosing wall were also a safeguard against all sorts of predators, and in different countries those predators are different. Even then, despite the barricade of thorn bush, and this is an interesting parallel to all that Jesus is saying, even then, despite the barricade, there were occasions when the predators would prowl around a sheepfold stealthily searching for some spot where they could leap over the enclosure to capture and kill their prey, which would produce panic in the flock. The carnage is terrifying, and the losses among the flock can be enormous, for the sheep owner Raids on his sheep represent serious financial reverses which may take years to recover. Why is all this important? It is important because the people listening would have understood that perfectly. When he brings up the whole idea of being the door, they know what he means. When he brings up the whole idea of thieves and robbers, they know exactly what that means to the shepherd. Because, as I've told you in the past, the sheep were not raised for food, for their meat. They were raised for their wool. And often the shepherd would have a relationship with them for 10 years or so. So that to lose one sheep was a great financial loss. So the reference over to something that was very familiar and also pointing up in their minds how important the truth he was teaching through this analogy would be. In this particular sheepfold, which would be built, as I said, when you came to the opening, there was no physical door. There was just an opening. And it was built in such a way that the shepherd would get into that opening himself. And there he would sit and eventually sleep in the opening. So to get to the sheep, you had to get by the shepherd. You had to go through the shepherd to get to the sheep. And it is an obvious, beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and how that the devil, in order to get to us, has got to go through Jesus Christ. 
And we find that in the book of Job. In order to get to Job, who was the righteous man in the whole world, which is, by the way, why he wanted to get to Job, he had to go through God. And so Jesus is working off this analogy so familiar to the people. I just love this picture of Jesus there as the door and that he is there that you, the devil has to go through him to get to me. I just see it as the care of God, this God caring for me. I, I love what I read about a Sunday school superintendent who once asked this question to the class, who can tell me what a yoke is? Something they put around the necks of animals, a 10-year-old girl shouted out. Then asked the leader, what would God's yoke be then? There was silence until suddenly a four-year-old lit up and got a big smile on his face and said, God's yoke would be God putting his arms all around our neck. I love that. So profound, yet so simple. Isn't it just like a kid to catch the depth and their simplicity that we often miss when we're trying to be so profound? So it was with the Oriental Shepherd. He was always ahead of his sheep. He was always caring for the sheep. And to get to the sheep, the predator would have to go through him. He is the door of the sheep. Now, having understood that, you realize then, working off the analogy of being only one door there, that the point is very obvious. He is the only door. He is the only door. Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. And all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Here Jesus is teaching that he is the only way to God. Very often when we are sharing our faith, people complain to us. You know, and one of their biggest complaints is, you Christians, you are so, what? Narrow. And you know something? I used to really worry about that. I used to get real nervous when they would say that because there was a part of me that wanted to please everybody and be all inclusive. When people say that to me now, you know what I say back to them? You are absolutely right. You are absolutely right. You're brilliant. You're much smarter than I thought you were. You're grabbing so much already. You are so narrow. That's right. And I'm narrow not because I want to be narrow, but because Jesus said, I am the door. I am the only way to God. And that is exactly why. If you want to take them to a passage when they say that, take them to this passage. Explain to them the sheepfold. Explain to them there was only one opening. Explain to them the opening that in that opening sat the shepherd and that the shepherd literally was the door and explain to them this is Christ himself, you know, because the beauty of that is you can say, look, can I just show you a parable from the Bible? It only take a second. Do you know the parables? Well, no. Well, I'm learning a few. Can I tell you what I'm learning? And here's a wonderful way, you know. You open it up and you read it to them and now you've got them into the Bible. And you see, once you got them to the Bible, the Bible has a power all of its own. So you just let the Bible go to work. As Spurgeon said, you let the lion out of the cage. It has a power and a thunder all of its own to people's hearts. So here, then you can conclude, obviously, this is not me saying this. This is what Jesus said. And then they have to deal with it from that point. See, if there was more than one door in the sheepfold, the analogy would be pointless. So Jesus said, 
In John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and this is as narrow as it gets. No one, no one comes to the Father but by me. No one. So when someone says to you, I know God, I know God in my own personal and private way. And you say, but do you know Jesus Christ? No, not interested. But I know God. So, you know, we're all kind of after the same thing in the end. Hey, back off, man, because I already know him. Then you take them to John 14, 6. And you say, well, then listen to the words of Jesus Christ. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and absolutely no one comes to the Father except through me. So guess what? According to Jesus, if you don't know him, you don't know the Father. And this becomes critical. And don't be afraid to share this with people because there's so many people out there that want to fall back on their ambiguity and in some way get you off their case by saying they know and love God, they just don't want to come through Jesus Christ. And the thing is, is that if you're talking about Christianity, there is no Christianity without acknowledging that. And this is so crucial because Christianity is the only way to God. Further, in terms of what is called the church of Jesus Christ, there is such a muddle out there of churches that claim to be Christians. I mean, even among the denominations, there are so many splinter groups. And you'll find that in some of the old long-term denominations, some of the groups know God and some of them don't. And I remember talking to one pastor friend of mine who was in one of these denominations, and he said, I want to be very careful to point out that I'm a Christian first and my choice of this denomination is second. And I also want to point out further that there is a great portion of people that have this label as Christians, but they are not our sector. They are a whole different division of this denomination, and most of them do not know God, and we have nothing to do with them. So the whole thing is so muddled up that you have to understand there is no Christianity without Jesus being the only way, because there's some people that call themselves Christians. They go to some kind of a, quote, Christian church where nobody really knows the Lord. That church will be packed out on the Sunday after the rapture. Everything will be going on as usual. And those people see themselves as Christians. But if they don't take Jesus as the only way, if they say, well, Jesus is a way, you know, Muhammad is a way, if that's their attitude, that's not Christianity. That is not Christianity. And if it isn't Christianity, it isn't saving. If you take all the other religions in the world and think about it, you could remove their leader and it wouldn't make one bit of difference. Their founder. If you took Buddha out of Buddhism, the philosophy would stand by itself, just like some scientific research fact. If you take Muhammad away from the Muslims, it stands anyway. It really becomes irrelevant because they don't have a relationship with a person. This is the thing that when I was studying world religions, it bothered me and I, I began to realize there's a pattern here. Because all the while I was studying world religions, I was being witnessed to about Jesus Christ by my brother and my ex-drug friends who were now born-again Christians. And so I'm studying world religions and one after the next, I'd finished the book. I read the Koran. I read the Upanishads, the Hindu Bible, the Muslim Bible. I read about Buddha. I read all these things and everyone in the end, it didn't matter who the founder was because in the end you really weren't led anywhere anyhow. 
We're let off into some vibration in the cosmos after your death, a recycle over and over, which that's kind of a hell to me anyway. Who wants to come back to this place? But the thing that was so different, it was so obvious to me, is that the witness of the Christians to me was, this is a person who saves you. This person, Jesus Christ, is God, He saves you. He is the only way. All those other ways are lies. And the fact that I believed all those other ways were a way in the end, because they really didn't lead anywhere, and because the Bible is alive, and because it, the Word of the Lord doesn't return void, something in my heart just began to pound and pulsate. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. And that's the effect of the Bible and the Spirit of God. So here is Jesus Christ, and He says He is the only way. He never claimed merely to know the truth. He never claimed, as some are willing to admit, that will embrace all faiths, he never claimed to just be a teacher of the way. He said very distinctly, He is the truth. He is the way. He didn't say, I can show you the way to God. He said, I am the way to God. So within Christianity, so-called, if there's no Christ as the only way, there is no Christ. If there's no Christ as the only truth, there is no truth. And there is no real Christianity and there's no salvation. And I think all of us have friends and loved ones that are in those places that think they're on the way to heaven because the label out front effectively says Christian in one way or another. Jesus Christ, someone has well said, stands solitary and alone among all the heroes of history and presents to us an unsolvable problem unless we admit him to be more than a man unless we claim him and proclaim him as God otherwise he is an unsolvable problem because of everything that you find in his life and so he is either everything he said he is or he is there and if you will study him he is there as something will not go away because you cannot get closure on his life and sweep him away because he is God. G. Campbell Morgan once said, if Christ is only man, then I am an idolater. He said, if he is very God, then any man who denies him is a blasphemer. And then he sums it up. He said, there can be no union between those who hold to his deity and those who deny it. Thus for me, we happen to be a non-denominational church, it doesn't make us the real thing. Christ makes us the real thing. But for me, in interfacing with other pastors of other denominations, which are endless, I encounter those that are real and those that are fake. I remember the night I was hitchhiking up to Oregon, and I got right next to the Oregon-California border, and I was so tired, and it was so freezing out. And I prayed, and I said, Oh, God, please have someone pick me up that will take me to their house and feed me and let me spend the night and just make it a nice house too, Lord, and make the conversation interesting too, Lord, just, you know, as long as you're at it. The next thing I know, I notice a church nearby. So I wandered over to the church, and as I wandered over to the church, the door was open. And I thought, well, this is interesting. No need to tell you what kind of church it was, but it was a denomination that calls itself Christian. And then this guy comes wandering up, and I said, Say, you don't know anybody that could take me home and feed me and give me an interesting conversation and all this kind of thing. And he said, Well, yeah, I will. I said, Will you really? He said, Yeah, I'm the pastor of the church. I said, Well, hallelujah. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. And, you know, uh -huh. But anyway, he said, I'll take you home. 
So he took me home. We walked in. The first thing I saw on the wall was a picture of Jesus painted by none other than Pablo Picasso. That was my first indicator that perhaps this pastor <laughs> was not born again. The picture of Christ by Picasso looked literally like an unshaven bum. And I said, do you like that picture? He said, oh, that's my favorite picture. I mean, it just presents Christ. And I thought, oh, gee, this is going to be a really interesting conversation. <laughs> and it was, and we went long into the night. But it became evident. First thing he did was say, listen, I know you're cold. Can I give you a beer? And I thought, yeah, and show me your Picasso picture again, you know. I said, no, I don't want a beer, thank you. Do you have any Diet Coke? Same order every time. So we had sat down and we talked till long into the night. This man did not know Christ from the man in the moon, but he was the pastor of the local church. Without Christ, there's no Christianity. And I, in no uncertain terms, made it plain to this man he was going straight to hell when he died, even though he was the pastor of a church. And I said, you're going to join your favorite artist over there when you leave this place. He was offended. I didn't like his picture, but he was more offended at my message. However, he didn't kick me out, and I got to spend the night there. And in the, in the morning, he was really under conviction. I wonder, you know, if he came to Christ since then. The point is that Jesus is the door. And without him as the door, as the only way, as the only door, there is no Christianity at all. He was very clear on this. And we must be clear on it so that we can witness honestly, lovingly, accurately, to those in our lives that don't know Christ but think they are Christians anyway. And if you're one of those, and maybe you're sitting here right now and you're wishing you weren't caught in the middle of your section, but on the end of the aisle, so you could pretend you just got beeped or something, and you could leave really quick. I just want to say to you that God stuck you in the middle of where you are so you can't leave. Because he loves you too much to let you walk off again and, and live your life in such ambiguity. Jesus is the only way, and the only way you're going to go to heaven when you die is if you know him. And if you don't know him tonight, and you're hiding in, in a blur of non-Christianity that calls itself Christianity, you need to repent of your sins and be born again today. Don't leave without doing it. He has made it too simple, and thus your excuses will be too lame on the day you stand before him and your eternal punishment will be too long. It will be forever. Far better just to come to Christ today and enter into all that he has for you. So an instructive picture of Christ himself. And also here is a vivid picture of false shepherds. We've kind of spilled over into that, mentioned one already. In John 10:8, he says, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. These two terms here, thieves and robbers. Since Jesus is talking about himself as the only way to God, a thief in this sense is one who steals Christ's honor by somehow claiming himself to be the way or the go-between to get to the way. It's that kind of thing. So that it's the kind of person who calls men that want to get to God to come to himself first in some sense. And there are two kinds of such men, according to Jesus here. He uses two different words. When he says thieves and robbers, he's not just saying the same thing, repeating himself. He almost never does that. Most of the writers in the New Testament do not do that. When they seem to be saying the same thing, they're giving a different nuance 
in the language, the original language they wrote in, and that is the case here. These are two different kinds of men. When Jesus says, all whoever came before me are thieves, he chose the Greek word kleptos. Kleptos. What do you think that carries over into the English language? What is the derivative of that? How come you're all so familiar with that? I'm a little nervous about that. Just kidding. You're right, kleptomaniac. It refers to one who steals cunningly, by stealth, someone who operates in a sneaky way. Thus, it's kind of like the person who, before they had all the different types of protection, they stick all over clothing and things you buy now, going into a department store and sneaking out with something under their shirt. You do that now and the little sticker that's on there somewhere with the foil underneath it will catch you at the door and all the alarms will go off. But in an unprotected place, it's that idea. It's a sneaky thief. In the religious world, both of these types are prominent, the thief and the robber. They're both prominent. But the first one, the thief in the religious world, is the type of individual who uses cunning and questions. Questions. Think about what Satan did in the garden with Adam and Eve. How did he get to them? He didn't just waltz in the garden and say, ah, oh, this is all a big joke. God, I'm sure. It wasn't that. He didn't come in the garden and say, you know, there's other ways. What he did is he came and he started to question the integrity of God. His approach and mark it, write it down or mentally mark it, the approach that he used there is one of his most standard, because most effective, approaches. It is that of a slithery, sneaky type of questioning. That's one of the devil's tools. To get an individual to thrust questions at you. Not the direct approach, but questions. It's the indirect method of questions until he has filled your mind with so many questions that all your trust is gone. That's how the devil works. It's one of his most effective tools. To fill your mind with so many questions that pretty soon all of your trust is gone. In this category, then, are all those that raise doubts in the minds of others. For example, that unbelieving minister that I spent the night with. Or, for example, Sunday school teachers that are not really converted and they're just posing questions to the children that the questions steal their trust in God. Or professors in the cemeteries, I mean seminaries, that so many of the seminaries today turn out dead men to occupy dead pulpits with dead people in the pews. That's because the dead professors are up there putting questions into the minds of the students. They may go along and teach, but they're also throwing in questions. And the questions undermine the students. And until they come out of the other end with so many questions about God and the deity of Christ and Christ is the only way and eternal hell after and the virgin birth and so on that their faith has been undermined not by direct approach but by question. It's one of the most effective tools of the devil and that's the picture here of the thief. It's the quiet, cunning, slippery, soft touch thief that steals your trust in God. Paul warned Timothy about these people. He described them in 2 Timothy 3, 4. Can you turn there in your Bible and just look at it with me? 2 Timothy 3, 4. By the way, Timothy's life was filled with these people because 
often he Paul would found a church and then others would exalt themselves within the church turning people against Paul case in point Ephesus he founded the church at Ephesus it was a glorious church but then people came along behind him and began to undermine the church and turn the people against Paul so Paul sent Timothy there to straighten it out Paul wrote to the Corinthians the second epistle the whole thing was dealing with that issue so that Timothy in his life lived his life having to deal with people like this it was a major part of his life to go in and straighten out churches that had these kind of people and they're making a mess so he says in verse 4 of 2 Timothy 3 he says they're traitors they're headstrong they're haughty they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness which would be like the Pharisees in front of Jesus having a form of godliness but denying its power and here's the thing that we need to etch on our hearts and minds from such people what turn away turn away one of the things we've been blasted by in the media in recent in the last two decades is that these people are all right too that we shouldn't be judgmental that we should just all love Paul writes to Timothy he says turn away from these people they're dangerous they're soul stealers they're not just okay with a different opinion they are dangerous from such people turn away they are thieves and then Jesus if you go back to John Jesus uses this word robbers after thieves the word is lestus we have no English derivative for this word it refers to somebody who steals by violence it's almost a picture of the wolf or the lion jumping over the wall of the sheepfold directly into the sheep and just starts tearing them all up it's a violent picture so that it would be that kind of a picture in the mind of the listeners he says all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers there's a the sneaky kind and then there's the violent kind now the violent kind would be the type sort of like many examples John wrote in one of his epistles and he called out by name an individual that was opposing him he said when I come I'm gonna deal with this guy so that this guy exalted himself into the position he put himself into this position of influence and power in the Bible if you could turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2 verse 15 you have an example of this Revelation chapter 2 verse 15 here is if your Bible has the words of Jesus in red you'll find these words in red because it's Jesus the risen Jesus now the resurrected Christ speaking to these churches and to this one he says Revelation 2:15 thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which thing I what's the word hate if you search the Bible from cover to cover you will find it very surprising there are very few things that God says that he hates very few that just comes right out and says he hates here he says I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans pretty heavy do you know what the Nicolaitans doctrine was Nico one word Laetan another joined its priesthood over the laity that's what it is and Jesus and you can understand why 
says, I hate that. I hate it when a man puts himself between God and that individual, wanting just to come directly to God. I hate that. You see, because Jesus says there's only one door. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul equipping Timothy for the difficulties of his ministry against false prophets, false teachers. He says, for there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So the position of Jesus Christ as one mediator between God and man, if you look at this passage, what it does, practically speaking, is it it excludes all those that would claim to be a priest go-between between you and God. This passage does away with it. The passage in Revelation, Christ is speaking. The passage in John 10, Christ is speaking. So that the idea, if you think about it, a mediator, a true mediator or a go-between must be able to reach both parties. The reality is, though the priest may set himself up as the go-between between you and God, he cannot reach both parties. He's just a man. He himself has the problem of sin and bridging the gap. Therefore, the only one that could be a mediator between us and God would have to be man and God. And the only individual that has ever been man and God is Jesus Christ. There is, therefore, Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. All others, he says, are thieves and robbers. And one of the things that you find about these false shepherds is that they avoid, quote, the door. They avoid the door. It's the type of person who enters the pastoral office from worldly and self-exalting motive. It's the kind of person who has little or no real thought for Christ, no passion to exalt Him, so that there's no real passion to rightly divide the word of truth, no passion to contend and articulate for a what we could call a biblical Christianity. And we live in a time where we have to use that phrase, a biblical Christianity, for all the reasons we've outlined so far. So one of the marks of a false shepherd is they avoid the door. I think of the words of Martin Luther. If you study Martin Luther's life, what you find is this. He spent a great portion of his life in Roman Catholicism. He excelled in Roman Catholicism. He was a priest slash professor. So he was a teacher of others. But he himself lived in torment because he could never find real release from his guilt. Even to the point of using those, there's a word for it, where you abase yourself, the, the rough garments that scratch you continuously, the, the chains that you put underneath your shirt that scrape you and cut you all the time. He even tried all those methods to find forgiveness and freedom from his guilt. But as he was preaching, really teaching as a professor, through the book of Romans, to his students, He discovered the grace of God in the book of Romans. He began to preach it to anyone that would listen. He began to write about it. The result, he was excommunicated from the church, thrown out, because he came to believe in salvation by grace through Christ alone. These are the words of Martin Luther. Afterwards, he said this, Anything that one imagines of God apart from Jesus Christ is only useless thinking, and it is vain idolatry. Those are the words of a man who spent so much of his life in Roman Catholicism, 
a man who was excommunicated because he taught salvation by grace alone, and he came to that conclusion. Anything one imagines of God apart from Christ is only useless thinking and vain idolatry. Now, in contrast to that, the minister who makes very little of Christ, from God's point of view, is an imposter. The one who has effectively, in the terms of Jesus, climbed up some other way as a thief and a robber, takes his office not by the door but by some other way. And if you want to look in the group Jesus is addressing, the ones that fit that definition are the Pharisees. They fit it perfectly. So that the sentence that he is putting out before them is a sad and humbling one. There was no door in their ministry. Think about it. They didn't teach anything rightly about the Messiah. It was their job to open the Scriptures. It was, it was their role in life to lead the people to God. It was left in their hands from God to have the people ready to receive the Messiah when He came. Yet they themselves rejected Him. There was no door in their ministry. It is a standard mark of a false shepherd, no door. In contrast to that, you have the true under-shepherd of Christ who we could say the, the true under-shepherd minister adores the door, adores the door, wants the door, and all, all the preaching is fixed on Christ, has much of Christ inwardly, is truly dedicated to exalting Christ. If you could describe their ministry, the grand touchstone of it would be Christ. It would be Christ. The man who makes much of Christ is the pastor after God's own heart. Why? Because he enters the ministry with his eyes single on Christ. He is there to exalt Christ. He is there to glorify Christ. What he does, he does in the strength of Christ. He doesn't learn it at seminars. He doesn't learn it where you pay 175 bucks, go in and find out how to do the stuff. He knows Christ. He studies Christ. He exalts Christ. He's moved by Christ. He's driven by Christ. He lives to preach Christ. He preaches Christ's words. He walks in Christ's steps. And his labor is a labor to bring people to Christ, knowing that the truth will always divide from falsehood. The light will divide always from the darkness. And thus, to even be such a person is to set yourself up for many, many enemies, just as Christ had many enemies, just as Paul had many enemies, just as Isaiah had many enemies. Just like if you go down through Hebrews chapter 11 and you see how they all died, it's because they took their stand for a Christ-centered, God-centered ministry. So you have an instructive picture of Christ here and a vivid picture of the false shepherds, and then you come to an understanding of this peculiar picture of true Christians. Back to John 10:7, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. If you are a true Christian today, you have entered through the door. The teaching of Jesus is this, you must enter. You must enter through the door if you want to go to heaven when you die. You must. So many people are, think about it, are preoccupied with dying today. So many people. And yet, they're worried they're going to die. They're all caught up in health foods, not that that's bad. Those into health foods, they want to live a long life. You know, those into exercise, you know, and... 
Godly exercise profits a little. That means for a season. There is value in taking care of the temple of the Lord. But there is just in general in our world nowadays a concern to live because you don't want to die. I would say this, fear not that your life is going to come to an end. But have a major fear that your life has never had a beginning. Too many people live their life without having the beginning of real life. Life does not begin until you enter through the door. You are dead while you live until you enter through the door. Fear not that your life will come to an end, but rather that it will never have a beginning. I love the words of Paul the Apostle in Philippians 1.21. He says, for me to live is Christ. He's my whole life. What do you do for a living? I make tents, but that's not the issue. It's Christ. What do you do for fun? It's not the issue. It's Christ. He said, for me to live is Christ. And then he said this, and to die, bonus, gain, greatest gain of all. He himself was caught between the two because they were both so good. Whether to live and serve Christ or die and go to be with him. The question again today is this, have you believed on him? Have you believed on him? How do you become a Christian? You believe on Him. How do you go through the door? You believe on Him. You take what He said and you put full weight of your trust on Him. You say, that's it. I will place my life on that truth. And I will go through the door. What is so wonderful? He's made it so easy. So easy. Just think of it. If you're a Hindu, you're going to keep coming back endlessly, recycling. Fly one time, grasshopper another... You're a lousy grasshopper, so you come back a flea. You know what I mean? You get really good and you, you come back a rat. Think of that one. Rats are gods to Hindus. They're gods in India. Rats are gods. You filthy rat. Oh, thank you. But I thank God that Jesus has made it so easy. I watched this man on a special on TV after church one Sunday roll across India. And he rolled all the way up this road, all the way up this mountain. Finally, I think he'd rolled a thousand miles. My first reaction was, the guy's insane. But then I realized it's part of his religion, so he's rolling to the high point in life. He rolled up into this temple, only to find out the guy says, you know what, man, like you really blew it. That temple's a thousand miles in the other direction. You're going to have to like roll on out of here, man. And so he rolled away. No, I'm just kidding. But the guy rolled in. Just think of that was the case. Wrong temple. Oh, no. The guy rolled in, and there he was, supposed to have arrived at some new level in life. That kind of approach to God is just ghastly. Aren't you glad Jesus made it so easy? Just believe on Him. Lay your trust on Him. Cling to Him. He said, I'm the door. door. A door is the simplest thing in the world. He compared himself not to a long, dark passageway that you have to feel your way along. You know, what if it was that? Well, I don't know. I'm afraid of the dark. And I get claustrophobia. How wide is the passageway? You know, you could be afraid. What if he said, I am the wall. Whosoever can climb and make it all the way to the top, end over. This is a marine style thing. We'll enter in. Oh, I don't know if I can make it over the wall. He said, I love it. He said, I am the door. What do you do with a door? You walk through it. Just walk through it. James Montgomery Boyce, this is a great thought. He happens to be the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. In his commentary, he shares this story. He says, a number of years ago, a woman sat in a pew in the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which I now serve as the pastor. 
He said, at that time in those years, the pastor was Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was talking in his sermon about the cross and of the need to believe on Christ who died upon it. The woman I am talking about was not a Christian, yet she had been raised in a religious home and had heard about Jesus. She had heard about the cross, but she did not understand these things and therefore obviously had never actually trusted in Jesus Christ for her salvation. In order to make clear that salvation, for salvation only belief in Jesus Christ is necessary, Barnhouse then said this, Imagine that the cross has a door in it. He says, Imagine the cross has a door in it, and all you are asked to do is go through the door. On the other side, the side facing you, there is written an invitation, Whosoever will may come. He said, You stand there with your sin upon you, and you wonder if you should enter or not. Finally you do, and as you do, the burden of your sin drops away. You are safe and you are free. Joyfully you then turn around and see written on the backside of the cross through which you have just now entered the words chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And then He invited any that were listening to enter the door and to believe and enter on into the door. I love this part. He said, the woman later said, this was the first time in her life she had really understood what it meant to be a Christian and that in understanding it she had believed. She believed right there in that church, in her seat, at that moment. She entered the door. He said, moreover, the rest of her life bore witness to the fact that a great change had indeed occurred and that she truly was born again and had become God's child. He said, I am certain of the facts of this story because, he said, that woman was my mother. I love that. And he went on through her life, an example to him, to become the pastor of that very church when Barnhouse went on into retirement and died. I want to say to you today, if you are a parent, you're not in this alone. You're not. If you are an aunt or an uncle, you are not in this alone. If you are a grandparent, you are not in this alone. You say, you know, because you may be thinking, well, you know what, fine, fine, fine. It's my life and I'll do what I want. Well, you're not in it alone. And if you just do what you want, and if you don't go through the door, people are going to follow your example. And it, let's just suppose you never go through the door and there's other loved ones watching you. There's kids watching. There's your kids watching. And they miss the door too because of your example. And they miss it entirely. They go on into everlasting hell. What about that? It's my life and I'll do what I want. You going to do that? Or are you going to know Christ? I remember the day I sat across the table from my sister, my older sister. She's the oldest in the family of three kids. And she was living her life. My brother-in-law was just living his life. And they were having all these kids. I said, what are you, what are you going to do? Just live like this? I said, you have kids. I said, now... Suppose you just live like this and they grow up and just live like you. That means they're going to smoke and drink and cuss and chew. No, I didn't, you know, it's a poem, but I didn't say that like that. But I said, what are you going to do with this? What if they all go to hell? Because you're having a lot of them. I said, this is not about you only. It's about you and everyone you know. And it's about you and your kids. And you need to give your life to Christ. If for no other reason that you care about your kids... Guess what? Kids are all grown up now. They've all graduated from school. 
They're all Christian. And so is she. And so is my brother-in-law. You see, you're not in this alone. Don't live like you are. Look around you. You're affecting people's lives. Don't just go on your way. You must enter the door. And when you do, you must do it alone. It is a private thing between you and Christ. It is a narrow door. Only one person can go through at a time. Jesus said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. In Luke 13, 23, someone said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Enter the door? No. Seek to enter some other way. And nobody's coming in any other way, and the door is narrow, and you must enter alone. It's like a turnstile going into Disneyland or somewhere. You go one at a time alone. You must enter. You must enter alone. That's what a real Christian is all about. Somebody has done that. And then you receive real life. And I love that phrase, you come in and you go out. You come into Christ and you go back out into the world. You're still a person. You can still joke around. You can still have fun. Tell different kind of jokes, but still having fun, still joking, having more fun, in fact. And you have entered the abundant life. Jesus said in verse 10, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And it really is the abundant life, isn't it? I remember the first thing that hit me when I came to Christ was for the first time in my life, I'm having real fun. And I never really had fun till I came to Christ. Well, I thought I did. I looked back and I thought, that wasn't fun. Now I'm having fun. The abundant life is all kinds of fun and joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You begin to live a whole different kind of life. And for the first time, you can let go and really enjoy it. I read the words of an anonymous friar in a Nebraska monastery who wrote the following words very late in life. I pass them on to you. I think some of you may be born again, but you're not having a lot of fun yet. You need to have fun. He wrote this, If I had my life to live over again, I'd try to make more mistakes next time. I would relax. I'd limber up. I'd be sillier than I've been on this trip. I would take more trips. I'd be crazier. I would climb more mountains. I would swim more rivers. I would watch more sunsets. I would definitely eat more ice cream. And less beans. If I had to do it over again, I would go places, do things, and travel lighter. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefooted earlier in spring. I'd stay that way later into the fall. I'd ride on more merry-go-rounds. I'd pick more daisies. Feel like that? Well, you're still here. So start now. You see, because Jesus set you free and you're free indeed, and now for the first time you can enjoy the smell of the sizzling bacon, the beauty of the blue sky, the sound of the waves lapping against the shore, because now you can see and hear them. You're free. Your eyes are open. Your senses have come alive because you have real life in Christ. The abundant life has begun. Take the joy, take the peace, take the love that Christ gives you, and go out and live your life and enjoy it. Crazier than you've been. Make a few more mistakes than you've been. Go barefooted a little more. Have fun. And people will see your joy and they'll want to know why you're having so much fun. And then you can open the Bible to John 10 and say, Well, you see, there's this door. I found this door. Let me show you this door. And away you go. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the door. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, for any here that have come in not knowing you, they've never been through this door. May this be the day that you open their heart and put in your cords of love and fix them there and draw them into the door. They could come to know the love and freedom and abundant life in Christ today. If you're that person, if you're sitting here and you just feel the touch of God all over you, just open your heart and invite Jesus in now. Just ask Him to save you, to be Lord of your life, to forgive you for your sins. Ask Him to lead you from this place, to open His Word to you. He's not looking for a perfect prayer. He's looking for an open, honest heart. Give Him your heart today. Lord, we thank You've done that in so many of our lives. We bless You and we praise You. Thank You for this time together to worship You, to, to come in and now to go back out and to take You with us. We give you glory, for in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.